The legislation now imposes duties on every parent who is applying for relief under this, this act. And those duties include exercising their responsibilities in the best interests of their child or their children, protecting children from conflict, uh, where appropriate, trying to resolve their matters through family dispute resolution processes instead of through the court. So that could include mediation, collaborative family law, negotiation, arbitration. Um, it requires parents to provide complete, accurate, and up-to-date information uh, as they may be required. And that really helps with efficiency. Um, we don't want the court to be clogged up uh, with people attending again and again and again because they don't have the information that they need to be able to move their matter forward. Um, and it also requires parents to comply with orders um, that may be made until they're no longer in effect. to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick from Merrick Law, and I'm joined by my co-host, Evan uh, Clark of Kahane Law. Hi, Evan. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm good, Heather. Did you forget my name for a second? Uh, I did, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm a little feverish from getting the COVID vaccine yesterday, so you've got to forgive me any, uh, any, any flub-ups today. Yeah, look, Heather is really um, not sharing the full story here, which is she was in a lot of pain last night because of that vaccine, and she's such a trooper. She's here, would not miss... Um, recording this podcast for the world. So good job, Heather. I'm feeling great. I don't, I did not get the vaccine last night. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a little cold though. It's snowy today, even though we're in April, but I'm over it. Yeah. Yeah. Spring in Edmonton. Hey. Um, and we also have our special guest here, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisories. Hi, Kim. How are you? Hi, Heather. I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on today. I know before we jumped onto this podcast, I was complaining, as I always do, about my braces. And now I got the top ones on. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of an angry person right now, but I'm going to get over it and you can move on with the program. But for my <laughs> compliance bit and our listeners who, who don't know me, my name's Kim McDonald. I'm a financial advisor at, at McDonald Advisory with Raymond James. And I am a guest on this panel today. Um, and I um, really appreciate being invited. Thank you. Wow. So our guest is really going to have a rough go of it today with Angry Kim. <laughs> We've got Angry Kim, Feverish Heather, and um, Evan, who's cranky about the weather. So, <laughs> uh, well, I am very excited to introduce our guest today. Um, we've got Riley Gallant joining us today. Um, she's a partner at Latitude Family Law. She got her law degree from the University of Saskatchewan in 2008 and has been practicing family law um, since then for her entire career. So she started 
at Legal Aid, which is where she and I met, and continues to be a partner um, at Latitude Family Law. She is a litigator, a mediator, and a registered collaborative family lawyer, and has um, experience representing children in high-conflict parenting matters. She's also a member of the Legal Aid roster and participates in the Independent Legal Advice for Survivors of Sexual Violence program administered by the Elizabeth Fry Society. Um, I also happen to know that she's involved in many boards and associations and is such a generous donor of her time and knowledge and experience. Um, I also happen to know that she is uh, excellent dog trainer and has discovered a talent for watercolor during uh, the pandemic. So welcome, Riley. We're so happy to have you. How is uh, how's the pup doing today? Where have you got him contained while we're filming this? Uh, thank you, uh, Heather, for that lovely introduction. Uh, my puppy is Ronan, and he's not currently here because he's quite demanding of my attention while I'm working from home. Um, but thankfully, I have a cousin who lives in town, so sometimes he goes and hangs out with her. Um, and she has school-aged children who are now working, doing school from home for another stint of time. So he gets lots of good pets and snuggles uh, over there with my cousin when, when he goes. I think I saw you posted a bubble trick that you had taught him and I was like just absolutely flabbergasted by, by that. What's, uh, what, can you explain it a little bit? Sure, so I can't take much credit for this. I'm doing a, a training program with him currently and we were challenged to teach our dogs to blow, to blow bubbles in water uh, upon request by the end of that six-week program, kind of as homework. Um, and so I take a bowl of water, I throw a treat in it, and he just naturally sticks his face in it and blows bubbles. <laughs> so yeah, I can't take much credit for that. Um, but dog training has been one of the things that I've been able to do during the pandemic. So what kind of started as a fun thing, uh, it's getting a bit serious. We go to agility. He's, uh, he's a pretty bright little guy. And yeah, it's been really really fun. Yeah, he's a real sweetheart. So, yeah, so I got what Heather's uh, well-deserved lengthy introduction. Um, I got a couple questions that stem from that. First of all, uh, watercolors? Yeah. She mentioned, so what's this, uh, what is this she speaks of? <laughs> So this, I don't have any history of art. I didn't even take art classes in high school, uh, but I saw, I think I saw it on Instagram. Somebody was watercoloring and I thought that seems relaxing. I'll give it a try. And I just found that I really kind of took to it. So most of what I learned was just following uh, online tutorials. Um, and yeah, it has been very relaxing. Uh, really helps to focus on something else for a period of time when things are stressful. Um, I recently did a watercolor family portrait of my like nuclear family, my parents, my sister and I, and our various pets in front of the cabin at the lake, which blows my mind that I was able to pull that off. I mean, it's not great, but, but you can tell what it is. Um, so yeah, I've really enjoyed, enjoyed that. Yeah, that's my bar too. I've only watercolored once in my adult life that I can remember. And, and it's, you know, if you can tell what it is, I feel like that's a success. I've seen somebody say too, there's the hobby itself and then there's buying things for the hobby as like a separate hobby. And that 
is very true for me. Like, you know, I've got quite the collection here of things that will I ever use? I don't know, but I enjoy purchasing them. Nice. <laughs> now, the other question I had was this Elizabeth, Elizabeth Fry Society um, legal aid thing that you're part of. Can you tell me about that? Because I'm not familiar with it and it sounds awesome. So tell me about it. Yeah, so it's two separate things. So I'm a roster lawyer with Legal Aid Alberta, which means that I'm able to take certificates for people who qualify for legal aid and do work for them under those certificates. That's how I do most of my uh, representation of children work. And then the Elizabeth Fry uh, Legal Advice for Survivors of Sexual Violence is a separate program. And the way that that works is uh, anybody who has... Um, has been a survivor of sexual violence can contact Elizabeth Fry if they need some legal advice. It doesn't have to be in the realm of family law. It could be any type of legal issue. And if they qualify, then they can be set up with a lawyer to provide uh, up to four hours of legal advice. And so that can look like whatever is most beneficial for a client. We don't become their lawyer of record and represent them, but we can just provide general information and advice. We can review documents. We could help with drafting, prepare calculations, um, anything like that. And so uh, legal, um, sorry, the Elizabeth Fry Society did kind of a call out for volunteer lawyers. And I say it's volunteer, but it's, it's not technically, we do get paid. Um, and they've done training uh, with their lawyers, uh, for example, on trauma-informed practice and that sort of thing. So every so often, I'll just get an email from the program saying, here's somebody that needs some assistance, and then I get to help them out in that capacity. Wow, that sounds great. So for any lawyers that are listening that might want to get involved with that, how would they go about doing that? Um, there is a website, and I don't remember what it is um, off the top of my head, but I can certainly provide it to you if you want to add it in the notes. And then they have an administrator. Um, they often have people with family law questions and often people with uh, civil questions, um, but there might be other practice areas or other areas within um, Alberta where they're where they have a greater need for volunteers. I don't have that information, but yeah, it would be cer certainly um, possible to contact them and say, I practice in this area. Is there a way that I can get involved? Nice, yeah, I just did a quick search for independent legal advice, uh, Elizabeth Fry Society, and it came up, the website came up, so. Awesome, thanks for sharing that. That's not uh, the, the main thing that you're here to talk about, but um, certainly is something important. So in uh, a couple of years ago, the federal government decided it was high time that they make some changes to the Divorce Act. Um, what is the Divorce Act? Let's start with that. Yeah, sure. So the Divorce Act is federal legislation or federal law. And what I mean when I say federal is I mean that it applies in every province or province and territory across Canada. So some types of laws are specific to an individual province or territory and federal ones apply across the board. And it originally came into effect in 1985. So that's you know quite a while ago and it hasn't undergone any significant updates or changes since that time. Uh, one exception is we had the introduction of the child support guidelines back in 1997. But other than that, it's been um, not really looked at uh, since 1985. What the legislation does is it gives judges um, in the various superior level courts across uh, this country with the 
authority to divorce people if people have applied to the court for a divorce and the authority to make decisions um, regarding legal matters that are typically connected with a divorce. So if they're children, that could be a parenting order uh, and, you know, issues relating to how decisions are made with respect to children. And it can also relate to child support and it can relate to spousal support. Oftentimes people separating will also have issues of property that they need to deal with, but the Divorce Act does not touch on property issues. Those types of issues are dealt with in provincial legislation. And um, for listeners, Riley, can you answer this question? It might be trite to ask this, but does it apply only for married people? Like can common law, some people say they're common law married, can those people seek um, any relief or can they apply for anything under the Divorce Act? The Divorce Act does only apply to married people uh, who are wanting to divorce. There is a different route to go though if somebody is common law or as we say in Alberta, adult interdependent partners. That legislation is called the, the Family Law Act. And actually people who are married but may not want to get divorced but still need to deal with some of these issues because they're separated, they can also utilize the Family Law Act. Okay. Okay. So the Divorce Act is just dealing with, with formally legally married people, um, but it applies all across Canada. And it's the same rules all across Canada for married people. That's right. Okay. Processes might be a little bit different because each province or territory is allowed to make their own rules of court is what we call them in Alberta. So you may see different processes. And of course, law is interpreted by judges. And so judges in different places may see things a little bit differently. So even though the overarching law is the same um, in each province and territory, the legal advice a lawyer might give on any specific circumstance could be slightly different um, province by province for those reasons. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I've even heard, I don't know if either of you, Heather or Riley, have heard this, but I've even heard judges between Calgary and Edmonton have their own, um, not biases, but like leanings for parenting, for example, that in Edmonton, they tend to uh, lean more towards a 50-50 schedule wherever appropriate, whereas in Calgary, they don't lean quite so much in that direction. Um, so if that's true, and I haven't, I, I haven't been to court in Calgary and, and seen this in action, that's just only what I've heard, disclaimer. Um, that's just an example of how judges who, you know, can, can differ on their approach to the same piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think um, in Alberta, it was talked about previously moving to a unified family court where it's a set number of judges always dealing with family law matters. Some other provinces have a unified family court. And one of the benefits that can come if you do have a unified family court is a, is a bit of enhanced consistency because you have the same people consistently dealing with the same issues. Um, people may not know this, but judges who are appointed to the Court of Queen's Bench, um, which is the court in Alberta that decides matters under the Divorce Act, they hear all sorts of things. So they could be in court one day dealing with a divorce, then they're dealing with a bankruptcy, then a criminal matter. So it's a very wide range of issues that they're deciding at any given time. And of course, judges are human and they have their own experience and perspective that is behind any decisions that they might be made, that they might be making. And they might be coming to the bench from some other angle too. Maybe they were like a labor lawyer or something like that. So that's interesting. 
Um, okay, so you oh, go ahead, Evan. Yeah, move on from this. I just wanted to just before we lose anybody that's not married, separating, uh, that are adult interdependent partners. Can you just talk a little bit about how the Family Law Act compares to the Divorce Act for key things like parenting, um, child support, this type of thing? Yeah, that's a great question and something I was hoping that I would have the opportunity to talk about because the changes that have been made to the Divorce Act are not completely out of the blue for Albertans because we have a relatively recent Family Law Act that is quite similar in a lot of aspects to this new amended Divorce Act. Um, some provinces, their provincial legislation um, touching on family law was more dated or quite different. And so they now will have a big adjustment to make when it comes to um, operating under the amended Divorce Act. But in Alberta, there are a lot of similarities to how we were already functioning when utilizing the Family Law Act and how we'll now be functioning using the Divorce Act. Okay, so I guess that begs the question, um, what has changed? What's new in this, um, in this new Divorce Act? Yeah, so there are a whole host of changes and I'm going to focus on the most um, significant changes or the changes that I think would be of most interest to the most amount of people. Basically, the federal government was looking to update the, um, the Divorce Act with a few goals in mind. Um, I think the primary goal was to better focus on the best interests of the child as a primary consideration. Um, behind the Divorce Act. The previous version already said that when judges are making decisions about parenting time or children, we used to say custody and access, they should be doing that based on what's in the best interest of the child. But now the amended version includes that in various places and expands on that. It gives a, the court a bit more direction on what they should be thinking about when being asked to make those types of decisions that impact children. And there's also a focus on uh, addressing family violence. That's an overarching goal of these amendments. Um, some of the updates to the uh, the child support portions that I probably won't touch on very much in this um, conversation are meant to try to address issues of poverty um, as well. And generally to try to make the family justice um, system more accessible and more efficient. So I know that's a particular um, interest to, to those of you probably listening to this podcast and host, hosting this podcast. So some of the changes um, that are significant is the legislation now imposes duties on every parent who is applying for relief under this, this act. And those duties include exercising their responsibilities in the best interests of their child or their children, protecting children from conflict, uh, where appropriate, trying to resolve their matters through family dispute resolution processes instead of through the court. So that could include mediation, collaborative family law, negotiation, arbitration. Um, it requires parents to provide complete, accurate, and up-to-date information uh, as they may be required. And that really helps with efficiency. Um, we don't want the court to be clogged up uh, with people attending again and again and again because they don't have the information that they need to be able to move their matter forward. Um, and it also requires parents to comply with orders um, that may be made until they're no longer in effect. 
There's also some additional duties on lawyers who are representing people under this uh, law. Um, and one of those additional duties is to uh, encourage any clients that we might be advising to use family dispute resolution options, again, unless it would be clearly uh, inappropriate to do so. And we're also required to inform clients about family justice services um, options that might assist them. That's already existed in the Family Law Act in Alberta, so lawyers should hopefully be used to having those conversations with clients already. And we in fact have to certify when we're filing a claim with the court that we have done that. Um, so those are some kind of general goals and changes that have been made. Um, getting into some more specific changes, um, we now talk about parenting um, in terms of parenting time and decision-making responsibilities instead of talking about custody and access. And this change was brought in because it was seen as being more focused on relationships that children have with their caregivers instead of, I think, the legal kind of definition of the, of the role that a parent is taking. So that's a bit of a shift. And again, that's in line with what we were already doing under the, under the Family Law Act. And the Divorce Act also tells courts what to consider when they're trying to decide what is in the best interests of the child. There's a whole list of things. Um, I can go through some of them if you think that might be of interest. But one of the important updates is specifically um, considering family violence and the impact on uh, any family violence that may have occurred on the ability and willingness of a person who may have engaged in family violence um, to care for and meet the needs of the children. So that's a pretty significant um, inclusion there. Uh -huh. So what was it before? Why is it? Why would that be so significant for people who haven't been involved in divorce before? So before the, the Divorce Act just didn't really clarify what judges should be looking at when deciding what is in the best interest of the child. It just didn't say. It just said consider what's in the best interest of the child. Um, in Alberta, our provincial legislation, the Family Law Act, already had a list of considerations. So we were quite used to addressing those um, considerations when in court. And, and of course, judges in the Court of Queen's Bench deal with both pieces of law. So they were already used to thinking that way. But this provides some consistency across the province or across the country rather just in case there might have been some places where it wasn't specified and just makes it clear that under this piece of law as well this is what we should be looking at yeah i think that's a that's such a good point because the um i think just the judges having a list because like like you mentioned before riley um uh or was it heather one of you mentioned that their judges can be appointed from that practiced in any area of practice and now they're a judge and so um providing them with with legislation that's really clear instead of you know it just being out there in the common law realm and some other decisions that they'd have to know about first hopefully will help with getting more uniform decisions about what's in the best interest of the child I had a question though, I have a couple questions from what you just, uh, your introduction to these changes. The first one I, I wanted to ask about was, okay, so people that are making a claim under this act now have a duty you mentioned, um, and, and including a duty to protect children from the negative effects of going through a divorce and putting their needs first. So um, my, my question is, 
I think people would be tempted to think like, doesn't, don't people already have, don't parents already have that duty? And, and so, okay, it's good to have this in there, but like, what, what does that exactly do? And I, it's okay if you don't have like a great answer for this, because it's kind of, uh, I'm, I, I'm not sure exactly what putting that duty in does besides people have to sign something. Um, that they didn't have to sign before, but like, uh, is there anything more to it, Riley? I mean, I suppose lawyers have to confirm that they've told clients that they have that duty. And so my hope would be that that would prompt a bit of a conversation between the lawyer and the client about what that really means. And certainly I would hope that most people would strive to do that anyway. But oftentimes when couples separate and it's it can be chaotic um it can feel like a time of crisis people aren't always making their best decisions and they may not be their best self or their best parent um, at that given time so i think it, it provides an opportunity for the parent to pause and really think about that and maybe have a conversation with their lawyer or consider what exposure to conflict will do potentially um, to their child. And there's a lot of research, and you may have touched on this before in a previous episode, or maybe you're planning to on a future episode, but there's a lot of research available about the significant negative impact that exposure to high conflict for prolonged periods um, has on children. And it can create an environment of toxic stress and can actually even impact brain development. So these are serious, potentially long-term consequences. So I think it's an attempt to just remind parents um, to keep their children focused first, um, you know, try their best to resolve things outside of court as quickly as possible um, to alleviate any of that conflict and just kind of keep their, you know, their priorities uh, where they should be. Hmm. Does it serve a dual purpose as well? Just having parents focus on a clear issue. So if they have a focus, then they can drive decisions that way and, and get things moving. Is that, is that part of it? Is there an underlying piece to that? Yeah, there may be. I think if there's just something that you can kind of always return to when you're making decisions throughout the process, that's probably helpful. Yeah. Riley, when you mentioned uh, high conflict situations, um, does that encompass, I mean, that would encompass situations of family violence, but um, it, is there a broader definition of that, of high conflict? Like, are we talking just about situations where there's family violence or... Yeah, no, we wouldn't be talking about situations just where there's family violence. And um, high conflict isn't something that's defined by the Divorce Act, but certainly in my experience as a family law lawyer, I can kind of give some examples of what that might look like or what the court might be concerned about if they were presented with it. Uh -huh. so that can be things like just arguing in front of the children, even if it doesn't reach the level of family violence, but there's that tension and argument uh, swirling around the children. Um, it can include things like speaking negatively about the other parent in front of the children so that they're hearing that sort of thing. It can include discussing court about the, uh, around the children children, um, causing children to be fearful of what's happening in, in that regard. Um, 
causing children to feel like they are responsible for the outcome or that they're being forced to choose a parent. Um, those types of things can happen and can be very damaging uh, to children. So, and sometimes people don't even realize they're doing it. It's not intentional. Um, and, you know, they do have really good intentions when it comes to parenting their children. They may just not be mindful of, of the impact their, their behavior could be having. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for um, clarifying that and, and explaining the difference or the overlap between those two kind of situations. Another thing that the divorce, this amended version of the Divorce Act does it is allows judges to um, include a parenting plan that parents might make themselves, um, either just together or utilizing an alternate dispute resolution process like we've talked about to an order. And that really um, encourages parents to take responsibility and come up with a plan that is going to work for them. Um, parents know their children best. They're very likely to know what's gonna work best for their children themselves and their families. Um, oftentimes when judges are making decisions, depending on what type of court process is occurring at any given time, they may have very limited information about the parents and the children and be asked to make some pretty consequential decisions. Um, so that's something um, that's new in this version. And it, it, it again, just kind of goes back to encouraging resolution outside of court um, and allowing parents to make those decisions. The exception is the, the amended legislation says that a court doesn't have to endorse a parenting plan if a judge feels like it's not in the best interests of the, ch of the child. Um, so judges do still have that kind of overarching authority to make sure that everything um, sounds okay when they're being asked to make those orders. So what's the difference between a parenting plan and parenting time or a parenting schedule that might go into the order? So a parenting plan could include a parenting schedule. It could also include... Um, a decision about how the parents will make decisions for their for their children and it can include any other term or condition that a parent might want to address in their parenting plan and essentially what they're doing is they're creating their own plan and then a judge is basically turning that plan into a court order and saying yes okay this is now what's going to going to happen. If there is no parenting plan, those same types of issues can be dealt with in a court order. So a court order can say uh, where the children are going to live and when they're going to go back and forth between two households. It can say who is responsible for making decisions for a child. Um, that could be one parent is completely responsible to make all decisions. Maybe they share responsibility or maybe one parent is responsible for certain types of decisions, but the other parent is responsible for other types of decisions. Um, it can include information about how the parents will communicate with one another. So if um, conflict often happens when they communicate in person, but they do great over the phone or by email, it can specify that. Um, it can specify um, ways to address any concerns that a parent might have. So sometimes a parenting order might say that um, children won't be exposed to drug or alcohol use, for example. Um, it can say if a parent needs to be supervised uh, for a period of time. And... Parenting orders can can be um, short term or long term. 
they don't have to last, you know, indefinitely. You can build in a date when they're going to be looked at again, if it's um, possible to make an agreement, say, for the next six months or the next year, but you have trouble getting beyond that. You can always kind of specify a, a return date. And so they really can be as creative as possible to address the needs of the family. And where people are working on that together, they can be much more creative than usually a judge can be. So that's another real positive of um, parents trying to get together to work those details out themselves. Right, right. They know their family best and kind of what might work for them or their their children ultimately. Is there a kit? Like, I'm thinking, okay, well, people are just brand new to divorce. And they're like, I got to come up with this plan with my spouse. It's better if we do it together. Is there like a will kit type of idea out there to put this together? Yes, absolutely. There are resources online. And that's an excellent point, Kim, because oftentimes people will come and say, I know I need a parenting plan, but I don't even know what to consider. So an example would be, do you always agree on how to share a, a holiday like Christmas or do you need to specify it? Um, what happens if one of you wants to travel outside of Canada? What's going to happen there? Who's going to hold the passport? Um, you know, all sorts of details that people might not think about. So the federal government, again, does have a resource on the website that asks those questions. And, and prompts that consideration and gives some ideas, I think. Um, I'm fairly certain that the Canadian Bar Association family section also has a toolkit about parenting plans. Um, so those are a couple of resources that I'm aware of. And there's also different um, organizations, for example, of collaborative lawyers that will sometimes have resources. So I've, I've done that research for clients before to provide resources and sometimes found things from like, you know, even the United States that, that would still be applicable for people to be working through because it's really just prompting questions that they might want to consider. So even just a Google can be quite helpful. Kind of to give you that list of topics that you might want to think of ahead of time and discuss and make decisions on. Yeah, and I, and I like, it, it's always best to keep it as simple as your situation will allow. And what I mean by that is where people have good communication, you probably don't need or want a really detailed plan, just want guidelines to help you. But where agreeing on stuff is a real challenge, it's better to be very specific so that you both have something you can rely on to like... To, so, so that you're not, it's not in conflict all the time. Um, yeah, it can be helpful to have a bit of a default too. So generally a parenting plan or even a parenting order will, will include some ability for parents to agree to something different if they both agree. That might be difficult if there's a history of it being unclear whether they've agreed or not. So we have to be cautious with that. Mm -hmm. um, but typically, you know, if you've agreed to share a holiday one way and you both want to do it another way, that's not going to be a problem. And it can be helpful to just have to have something to default to so that just in case that conflict arises, you have something that you can fall back on. And it's not always possible to access the court. So of course we're in the middle of a pandemic and that has created issues with court access um, that are being worked through. But even pre-pandemic, for example, if you thought that you had an agreement regarding uh, holiday parenting time and suddenly it's December 15th and you find out that actually you don't and you have no idea where your kids are going to celebrate, 
uh, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and Boxing Day, it's you might have lost your opportunity to get into court, and it's just not going to be possible. So that's something you know that that's beneficial again with resolving disputes outside of court. You're not limited by the court schedule, um, and something to keep in mind when parents are trying to build parenting plans. So you're saying like you might have a default schedule in your parenting plan that um, dad's got the kids in even years, mom's got the kids in odd years. You can move away from that. But if there's no agreement, then we know we've got the schedule there set out and we know what's happening if we can't agree. That's right. Yeah, I've, I've seen that work pretty well for, for folks in the past. Has the divorce... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Evan. I've got a question for either Heather or Riley. One one thing that um, will commonly be seen in uh, a parenting order or divorce judgment that contains terms about parenting is that it'll say something to the effect of primary parenting with this person or something like, or it might even be we a certain schedule and then the other person will have a certain schedule or not and then it'll be you know, generous access or generous parenting time. Uh -huh. um, and I think it's very common that that generous other time that as parties agree on is never agreed on and the other person never gets any additional parenting time. If someone finds themselves, or what can somebody do to prevent themselves from ending up in that kind of a situation where, oh, this, this term of generous, reasonable and generous parenting time sounds great, but it might not ever happen if, if it's a hard time for them to agree on anything. Do you want to, I feel like I've been talking a lot, Heather. Do you want to answer that? You're the guest though, Riley. <laughs> you get to talk as much as you want. You're the guest. Uh, I mean, I can, I can take a stab at it and Riley can say what she would do too. Cause I think, well, I think there's probably different answers depending on the situation. Um, but Riley alluded to earlier that parenting orders are not forever orders. So if something's not working, um, they can always be brought back into court for further clarification um, or to add in specifics of time. Um, I mean, I guess it's, it, I feel like it's pretty fact and case dependent, but would that person want to know that they've got a minimum amount of time with their children? Would they, you know, do they want to set schedule? Um, do they want to put a default schedule in there, but maybe be able to agree from it? So uh, those are some of the things I'd, I'd probably be thinking about. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I would say it, it takes a very high level of trust between parents to have a schedule that that's flex that that is that flexible in an order, um, and. If sometimes people have complicated work schedules, and so it might be impossible to say, I'm always going to have parenting time Wednesday to Sunday, um, but you might be able to say, I'm going to have parenting time three overnights out of the week. Um, and sometimes we can even get as detailed as saying, you know, one parent will provide their work schedule by X date. So maybe like, you know, prior five days prior to the first of the month, the work schedule goes, the parties have so long to figure it out. Sometimes um, if it's a holiday issue, for example, trying to figure out how to divide up a summer, one parent might get the first choice in odd numbered years and another parent might get the, the first choice in even numbered years. So there's lots of things that family lawyers have kind of experienced, you know, over the length of time that we've practiced, problem solved around and can often present as options um, 
that might work for families based on what we've seen work for other people. Those are both good answers. I think the, uh, I, I think what I'm picking up is if it's, if, if you already know that it's tough to agree, then maybe just have something a little more specific as to what you're hoping for. Even if you can't be, it's every X day. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that sounds good. Sorry, Kim. I cut you off twice. I apologize. I don't want to get on angry Kim's bad side. That's right. You better, you better keep it real over there, Evan, in your little corner, corner box. Um, actually, I was happy to hear you interject because I wanted to take the conversation in just a slightly different way. So I was happy that you wanted that you got your question out on parenting. I so what's been what I've been thinking about a lot lately is underrepresented people in this world. So LGBTQ plus uh, our native population, and I'm curious if there has been um, a, a discussion in the Divorce Act on different cultures and, and how they address that in the court system. Has that been brought up in that act? Do they are these people being represented? Um, there is so under the best interest of the child factors that are now included, some of those types of um, elements of a child circumstances are addressed, maybe not explicitly, but you can see them in there. So for example, um, one of the, I'm just reading my notes because I want to get the language specific um, and correct. One of the things that a court would be asked to look at is a child's cultural, linguistic, religious, spiritual upbringing and heritage, including indigenous upbringing and heritage. So that is specifically listed in the best interest factor. Um, there is also, there isn't anything specific to addressing um, LGBTQ plus um, family members, but I can say this is specific to Alberta. Um, our divorce forms were recently changed to be more gender neutral. Um, and so instead of saying, there were some forms that said husband and wife, but of course you might not have a husband and wife and those were changed to say spouse one and spouse two. Um, so that's not specifically tied to the divorce act but i think it's it shows that you know courts are, are, are attempting to be mindful of um those sorts of issues and try to address them when they you know are, are apparent great i guess i would say, i would add, just add to that that the the increased stress on best interests of the child of the children i think kind of goes to that as well in that um you know, what, whatever's in their best interest is, is what should be paramount, not what's most convenient for the parents. Yeah, and there's no presumptions either. And so what that means um, is that there is no starting point. So, you know, if we go back years and years and years, there used to be this idea um, called the tender years doctrine, which was that it was this assumption that, that young children are better off with moms. Um, that was done away with um, a long time ago. The previous version of the Divorce Act had something called a maximum contact principle. And that was a bit of a misnomer because sometimes people would interpret that as it's in the best interest of the 
interest of a child to have maximum contact with both parents, and that means shared parenting. But in fact, what the legislation said is it's that kids should have maximum contact with each parent as is consistent with their best interests. So that might be shared parenting, that might not be. And the amended Divorce Act um, has taken away that maximum contact um, language. It's very clear that there is no presumption. There is no starting point. It's not presumed that shared parenting is best. It's not presumed that parenting time with one parent is best. Similarly with decision-making, um, usually parents will have joint responsibility to make decisions unless there's some reason why that would not be appropriate. But that's not, the Divorce Act doesn't say that. It's just kind of what we do. It's very clear there are no presumptions. It always is supposed to come back to what is best for any particular child in their particular circumstances. The, the Divorce Act sounds so fair. As, like all three of you are lawyers. When you when it came out and, and you read it line by line and went through this thing, was your interpretation that they're on the right track, that changes were made in the best interest of people? Uh, I'm curious to hear all, all of your opinions on that. Well, I... I guess I'll go first. I, we haven't got yet to one of the things that I think is really important that I hope Riley will talk about, which is to do with um, relocating, moving, and notice around that. Well, I don't want any spoilers. I don't want to spoil Riley's uh, bombshell there. So, but the... Um, from what we've talked about already, yeah, I, and maybe partly because of the Family Law Act that we have in place in Alberta, and because the language that changed, one of the big changes that Riley already talked about was going from talking about custody and access to parenting time and decision-making authority. Um, and that's more consistent with what our, our Family Law Act says. And the thing that I was so, that I'm so grateful they changed it is because People would come and talk about, when you hear custody, normal people just think that means parenting time, as well as decision-making authority, when in, in reality, it didn't really. It, it's really, full custody meant more than just like you have parenting time all the time. It means the other parent can't make any decisions about that child's life. And so, I, so yes, that change I think was really important to just to make it a little bit more easy for everybody to understand instead of every time, um, you know, you hear custody and then the lawyer has to explain that that's like, like basically a term of art. So that, that was one thing that stuck out to me that I was, I was uh -huh. glad that they changed. What do you think, Heather? Um, yeah, and I think it gives some finer tools, I hope, um, for courts and for lawyers to use and look at. So like Riley said, you know, um, each case should be looked at individually and looking through all the factors and deciding whether um, decision making might best go to one of the parents for whatever reason that might be, that might be in the best interest of the child and always keeping the child in the middle of, um, of that, of that analysis. So I'm, I'm going to be very curious, I guess, to see as these, um, new cases wind their way through the courts, if lawyers and judges, stick with our old habits or if we do, um, you know, get out of the maximum contact sort of thought presumption that that means shared parenting, or if we do really start looking at things in a more nuanced way and looking at individual families. 
Um, so I think that's, that's a really good thing, I think, but it'll, I'm very curious to see how it's going to get interpreted by lawyers and judges. Yeah. And, and just to add again, it, it, like language change may not seem like a big deal because it, the substance didn't really change the language change, but I think it's important because it, the language reflects a paradigm shift. It reflects like saying access. Well, that's talking about it from the parent's perspective, calling it, um, you know, parenting time. It, it, that takes into more account of it's, it's supposed to be focused on the child. So I, I think that it, our paradigm as a family law bar, both and a bench, so the judges and the lawyers, I think it's slowly been shifting over time to a better place. So I, I'm hopeful that, that it'll keep going. Yeah, and from my perspective, I was very happy with the changes in the legislation for the same reasons kind of touched on by Evan and Heather. One of the things that concerns me, though, is still that accessing the court is so difficult. So while it's wonderful that we now have better attention paid to family violence and how that can impact children, um, if you can't get the issue before a judge for, you know, months, um, or you don't have enough court time to prove what you're trying to prove in relation to family violence that may have occurred, that can still be very limiting as well. So just as an example, um, at times people have disputes over whether or not there should be a, a restraining order, various types of restraining orders that a court can grant. And when there's conflict over evidence, there should really be a hearing so that the judge can hear from both parties and make a decision. But sometimes hearings don't happen for quite a while, which can be quite prejudicial to one or both parties. And sometimes when they do happen, they're so short, a judge is making a decision without really having a ton of time to consider everything. So it's, it is, it's great in theory. And I hope we'll, you know, have good results as the court starts dealing with it. But there's still that challenge of an overwhelmed court system, everyone doing their best to get matters through as quickly as possible, but those, those limits. And so mm. like I, I often talk with clients, if, if you, need to bring an, an initial application for something. So say you've just separated and you have no agreement on parenting time and somebody wants to request a parenting order from the court, usually the first stop is going to be what we call regular chambers. And judges make that decision not having spoken to either parent. It's based on what their lawyers say, based on what clients have put in a written document. We call it an affidavit. Each lawyer is supposed to have about 10 minutes. And, and then a decision is made and that decision can be hugely consequential. Uh -huh. So there's still that, that challenge. It's supposed to be even less than that. It's supposed to be 20 minutes for both sides to speak and the judge to make a decision. So yeah, that's, 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 yeah, that's a huge problem, right? Because that's, that's not enough time to really get into details that can only be for simple things. And that's, if you need to have something more complicated, then, then what does that look like? Yeah. And judges have, there's rules of court, there's rules of evidence that they need to follow. And this is all about protecting procedural fairness for people, which means that the process that they're using to get a decision over their matter is supposed to be fair to both of them. Something to keep in mind is there are alternate processes outside of court that are kind of like court, um, but, are, but are not court. Um, that's arbitration. And that's one of the things that's referenced in the, um, the revised, the amended divorce act as an option. And so if people 
people are interested and you might have talked about this already or are going to talk about it, but it's essentially figuring out their own process for how someone else will help them by making the decision, but not necessarily in court. So somebody accessing that option can choose a timeline because they're not stuck with the court's timeline and they can choose process, um, you know, how much information is going to be provided by who and what format, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's episode four with Catherine Spafford. So you can go check that one out. She, she talked all about arbitration. What does um, the Divorce Act say about arbitration? Does it just mention in, in passing or does it say anything else? Um, so it lists arbitration as one of the options that um, that people should be made aware of. I can't think it does it say anything else. I can't think of anything else specific to arbitration. No, I, I was cheating, I Ryan. I was just like, okay. I was just relying on you to know the answer. Is there something that I missed? No, no, no. Okay, I can't think of anything more detailed than that. But yeah, those things that are listed are not just um, nothing, right? They're they're real, very real alternatives to trying to go through the court system. Um, and you know, that's part of why we started this podcast in the first place. Is what you're talking about is an access to justice problem, uh-huh. and yeah. um, it's it's very real. We see it all the time where people just just cannot afford to get a lawyer to help them. And, you know, operating in Queen's Bench, which is the level of court that divorce stuff is taken care of in, that's not really an intuitive process and can be can be overwhelming for people. So alternatives can be very helpful and, and much easier to navigate. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. How important is it for people to read the Divorce Act if they're thinking about divorce, if they're in it at the moment, and, and the Family Law Act? Are, are these documents that lawyers say to their clients, you got to go read all of these details on both these documents so you can get up to speed? Is that like the, the perfect client? Is that something people would benefit from? I'm curious where those documents fit in, or is, are they just for lawyers? Yeah, that's a great question, Kim. I don't recommend that my clients go out and read the legislation. Um, it is all available online. So if somebody was interested in reading it, they certainly could could look through it. I think as lawyers, we're very used to reading legislation. So we're used to how it's set up. There's always definitions. You know, We're used to the language um, that is used. But I can think back to when I started law school and was reading legislation for the first time, and it was a little bit overwhelming. So I, I don't think that that is probably the best way for most people to get information but certainly if somebody's inclined to do the reading themselves it's available and they could do it um, but there are a ton of resources that summarize the, the legislation um, that are publicly available and I think people would be much better um, off starting there and I suppose if they're interested going a little bit further um, because yeah, people do have different kind of, sometimes they, they want to know every single thing. Sometimes they're happy for their lawyer to handle it. Um, but yeah, there are definitely resources that will summarize. There's public legal education resources that will summarize. Um, so that would be the better starting point, I would think. Yeah, and it's not like we, we lawyers want to keep the, the laws secret from our clients. Of course not. Um, but what we want to avoid is people misunderstanding the legislation and also there's two parts to it there's there's the legislation and there's how it's interpreted and that is generally carried out in the case law and it's our job as lawyers to be familiar with that and how it applies and how it and and like what it means to in everyday solutions so uh, anybody can read them and and it's not 
by all means read them. And, and they're better now today than they were 50 years ago. There's some horrendous legislation out there that's still on the books where you read it and you're like this, what, what are they trying to say here? So, I mean, the Divorce Act is much better written than, um, you know, old legislation. But um, the, we always, like, it's our job as lawyers to help interpret that so that we can, you know, help you understand what it means as opposed to um, trying to go it on your own. Yeah, there's definitely an effort towards plain language and accessibility and um, people being able to have the opportunity to either represent themselves or to understand the concepts, though, as well. So I'm thinking of the most recent divorce forms that came out in Alberta. The huge emphasis on those forms is so that anybody could pull them up on their computer and fill them out and the court would be provided with all the information that it needs in order to grant a divorce. So certainly the legislators have that in mind and are, are thinking about that all the time. And um, I think that one of the goals of the legislation is also to keep families out of court, recognizing that by the time you've gotten to court, you're probably in a fairly high conflict situation, which is recognized to not be good for children um, and for the litigants, for the people that are involved. So um, I think probably one of the goals is to try and, and help with that backlog and keep people out of court um, where court isn't the best or most appropriate option for them. Um, and that's probably why arbitration was listed, collaborative family law, all of those other uh, mediation, all those other options. So Riley, what other, what other changes do you got for us? Mm -hmm. um, do you wanna talk about relocation? You sure do. Okay. So um, the Divorce Act amended version now um, provides some guidance about how the court should treat a situation when one parent wants to move away um, and probably take the children with them or even if they're just moving. And so the reason why this is important is we are seeing more and more of these types of applications coming before the court. And the Divorce Act didn't previously specify how those should be handled. And so we weren't completely without guidance. Um, uh, judges create case law when they make decisions. And that provided us with some indication of how judges would treat these sorts of cases. Um, and we had some guidance from the Supreme Court of Canada that would then um, apply throughout Canada. And we're following kind of that system. But it was still very difficult um, to manage those types of applications. And so what the court has tried to do is provide a little bit more guidance about how that should happen. So they've addressed a few things. They've addressed what relocation is. So when it is considered um, significant of an, enough of a change that this process would be triggered and what needs to happen if it's not, and then a process. So um, describing, you know, what parties need to do and then what the court will do if the court is being asked to make a decision. So I can run through that. Um, so what is considered a relocation 
is a move that would have a significant impact on the child's relationship with another parent or somebody who has contact with them. So for example, if two parents live in the same neighborhood and one's just moving a neighborhood over, maybe that's not a big deal. Um, but if two parents live in the same neighborhood and suddenly the other one's moving to Vancouver, that's going to be a big deal because parenting isn't going to be able to look the same in light of that move. So if it's not significant and it's just a change of residence, um, notice of the move is still to be provided. So the person who's changing residences would be required to provide notice of that um, change in writing, state the date that they're moving and provide their new address and contact information. So usually people would do that, not always, um, but now it's clear that that's something that is supposed to be done. If it is a significant move, um, people may have heard this referred to as a mobility matter. The, the amended divorce act calls it location, but oftentimes uh, in Alberta, at least, we're used to talking about it in terms of mobility. Um, the process there is that the person who intends to relocate has to notify whoever they're required to notify. So typically it's going to be the other parent at least, at least 60 days um, before they're proposing to move. They have to give information like the date that they want to move, where they're going, um, contact information, new address. And they also have to provide what they're proposing in terms of the new parenting schedule. So where people live far apart, that might be, you know, maximizing the amount of time the child spends with the other parent during the summer or school breaks, that sort of thing. Um, and how decisions would be made also for children in light of that move. Um, and once the person who is not moving receives notice, then they have an obligation to object to the relocation within 30 days if they're, if they're not okay with the move. And if they're not okay with the move, complete uh, a form that provides some information that's set out um, in the Divorce Act, like their reasons for objecting and what they think of the proposal in terms of the parenting time. Um, if there is an objection and the court is being asked to make that decision, uh, what the amended Divorce Act says is that in determining that, they have to consider that list of um, best interests of the child factors that I didn't go through in detail, but that we spoke about earlier, and some additional factors. So they are required to consider the reason that the parent is wanting to re relocate, the impact the relocation would have on the child, the amount of time uh, the child spent with each parent, and the level of involvement the parents had in the child's life, um, whether the parent who's intending to move gave the proper notice and has uh, followed previous court orders, um, the existence of any agreement or court order that might specify a geographical area that the child is supposed to live in, um, the reasonableness of the proposal for the other parent's parenting time, um, and whether a person who has parenting time or decision-making um, complied with obligations um, that they were previously supposed to comply with and whether they're likely to comply in future. So an example there would be if somebody has a history of breaching court orders, not letting the other parent see the child, that's probably going to be a, a concern to the court. Um, something that the court is not to consider is whether or not the person who's requesting to move would stay put if the court didn't allow them to move. And so that was present in the case law previously, and it was referred to as a double bind. You can't really put a parent in that position because, because they're probably going to say, yeah, I wouldn't move. And then it kind of gives the court an out to say, well, then, then you don't go. So the way these are treated is... 
parents are able to be mobile, right? Like we have um, the ability to move wherever we want within Canada. The issue is really whether kids go when the parent goes. So um, it's an assumption that if a parent says they're going to move, they're moving, it's treated as such. And then the question just becomes, is the child going to go or is the child going to stay with the other parent? And it also speaks to um, who has the burden of proving what is in the child's best interest. So what it says is if the parents had substantially equal amounts of parenting time, the parent who wants to move has to prove that that move would be in the child's best interest. If the parent who moves had the vast majority of the parenting time, so it wasn't shared or close to shared, it was a primary caregiver situation, uh, and wants to move, then the other parent has a burden of proving that the move is not in the best interest of the child. And if there was no parenting order, they, you know, maybe a new separation, nothing was ever granted by the court or there was no agreement, then both parties have uh, the burden of proving to the court what is in the best interest of the child uh, in that situation. And this is a little bit interesting in that what the court has legislated, or sorry, what the government has legislated um, is somewhat different than how the the court was previously treating mobility applications. So previously courts were instructed or, or case law said that judges shouldn't consider the reason behind a parent's move unless it was relevant to their ability to meet the needs of the child. But the government has said, no, actually, we do want judges to consider the reason for the parent's move because it could be relevant to the best interests of the child. So that's a little bit of a a departure there. The overall hope is that this will bring some consistency to these decisions. And if decisions are more consistent, hopefully lawyers are better able to advise clients about potential outcomes. And if that's easier to predict, it may prevent um, disputed court hearings because people will have a better idea of whether their application is likely to be successful or not. So I think that's a significant goal behind these changes. Yeah, I'm not one that's like super, uh, that loves government regulation in general. I, I, I tend to be more libertarian leaning, but from my experience as a family lawyer, I, well, I'm very happy about these changes, this forcing that the court is doing, um, forcing the parents that are thinking about moving to provide notice because really, obviously you should, you should be providing notice and, and enough notice for, for something to happen or before, for there to be a dialogue before you just move. And, um, so I, I'm, I'm, I think it's a, I think it's a great thing because, um, I think before this, if I understand uh, recollect correctly, Riley, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or, or share some more insight on this. But before these new changes came into effect, there was there was zero um, responsibility or um, there there was nothing that they had to do if a parent wanted to move with the children. They they didn't have to notify anybody. They could just move and hope the other person didn't bring a court application. And, yeah. and so obviously that's, a, could you imagine if you were not the primary parent, you were um, exercising some parenting time, maybe every other weekend or something like that. And then one day you go to pick up the kids and they're gone. I mean, obviously that, hopefully that wouldn't happen, but, but you know, the equivalent of like, oh, oh yeah, we're moving next week. 
Yeah, and that certainly happens. I mean, sometimes parents find out about a move after the fact. You know, they, they've had their parenting time one weekend and then their next weekend is up and they get a call that says, sorry, we're in Newfoundland or, you know, wherever they might be. Um, and you're right. I mean, if there's a court order in place, people are obligated to, to follow that court order. And obviously, if you're moving across the country, you probably can't follow that court order in, anymore. And so there would be a positive obligation to apply to vary that court order before you move. But that does not always happen or did not always happen. And even if there's not a court order, um, yeah, people could just pick up and, and move. Um, the court would see that as something that we often call a self-help remedy, which is kind of, I've done the thing I wanted because I didn't know if the court would allow me to. Too bad it's done. Let the chips fall where they may. Are you really going to you know, pull these kids out of school and make them move back or, or what have you? And that was frowned upon to be sure self-help remedies are discouraged um, but sometimes they would still happen and a move could create quite a bit of chaos and something else that could also happen is maybe somebody moves and files a court application in the, the new province and there's something happening in the old province so yeah it can get quite complicated and quite messy so it's certainly helpful to have um, you know some expectations and guidelines regarding how these will be handled. Really, I'm thinking out loud about um, the family violence situations, and you mentioned that there were some notice provisions about even if you're just moving, for instance, from one address to another, are there any exceptions built into the process for those kinds of situations? Like, what if you've got someone who doesn't want their former spouse to know where they're living for safety reasons or, or other reasons? Yes, there is an exception for exactly that reason. So um, the amended divorce act says that uh, if, for example, in a situation of family violence, it's possible to apply um, for permission not to share an address. And that uh, application can be made on a without notice basis as well, which would mean that you wouldn't necessarily have to provide your spouse with prior notice that you're seeking to do that. So I think that's one of the, that's a good example of one of the ways that um, the government has tried to be mindful and really turn their mind to how family violence can um, be impactful for people and provide those um, kind of elements or options that, that may be necessary. Okay, thanks. Kim, I thought you had something to say, Kim, but... I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat waiting to hear about all the changes. Like, <laughs> I imagine there's quite a number of these things. Another thing that, I mean, it's not a huge deal because we already have this in, um, it was already possible under the Divorce Act and we certainly have it under the Family Law Act, but um, there's now provisions for specific contact orders to be made under the Divorce Act. And so that's language we're very used to dealing with in Alberta under the Family Law Act. But what that is, is it allows the court to grant somebody who is not a parent of the children or in the case under the Divorce Act, weren't spouses, um, the ability to have contact with a child. So oftentimes, sometimes we will talk about grandparent rights, and oftentimes that's the sort of thing that we're that they're talking about. That again is a misnomer. Grandparents don't have rights to their grandchildren um, because every decision that a court makes regarding people having contact with a child is based on the best interests of the child. So if it's in the best interests of the child, they can make an order to provide a grandparent or you know an aunt or whomever with contact with the child. But if it's not in the best interests of the child, there's no requirement. Um, so that is a, a bit of an update 
as well that there's now um, specific provision for uh, contact and that requires leave of the court. So leave of the court means that there's an additional hurdle that somebody has to get over before they can charge forward with a court application seeking contact. Um, a judge needs to be satisfied kind of at an initial stage that that's something that should be allowed to proceed um, before the process, get any, process gets any further down the line. Mm. That's interesting. I haven't, um, I haven't had too, too many of those kinds of applications in my career. How about you, uh, Evan and Riley? Have you come across many contact applications? Um, a couple. They're tough. They're tough. And from, and I, I was talking to another friend, a uh, lawyer friend who is representing a, a it's a tough situation because he's representing a parent whose spouse died and the spouses, so his, my client, my friend's client's in-laws want, uh, are trying to get an access order. Uh, and, um, and so that, that one sounds like a, a quite a bit of a, a nightmare, honestly, on both sides, it's been a real challenge. Ones that I've been involved with, it, it, it seems to be um, when the children are quite young, the ones I've been involved with, and that makes it really difficult for a grandparent to establish that they have a meaningful relationship um, with the child. And it's not just about, you know, it, it, there has to be some kind of a relationship in order to force a parent of the child to, you know, allow their child to go and have parenting time with a grandparent. So in, in my experience, it's a, it can be a tough uphill battle if the grandparent hasn't already been actively involved in the child's life. I don't know, what about you, Riley? Yeah, I've handled a few and under the provincial legislation, so the Family Law Act, um, leave is required to pursue a contact application unless the relationship that a grandparent had uh, with their grandchild was disrupted because of the death of um, one of the parents. So sometimes we see those because it does allow that kind of immediate application to be made. And, and those, I mean, they're just very sad. I mean, somebody has passed away. They're very difficult. Um, oftentimes, a grandparent and the Divorce Act, the amended Divorce Act says this, if a grandparent can exercise contact with the child during one of the parents' parenting time, it would not be anticipated that they get extra time or separate time, right? And so if, for example, it's the maternal grandparent, if they have a good relationship with the mother, they could have parenting time during the mother's or contact during the mother's parenting time. And it's not uncommon, you know, that a grandparent might have not have a great relationship with their own child for any reason, but might have a perfectly fine relationship with the other spouse oh. and have contact during that parent's parenting time. I I've seen that play out um, in my, in a previous case. Um, but there are also times when both parents have said, we do not want our child to have contact with grandparents for a good reason. And, you know, the court will say, yep, those are some good reasons there. There's something that, you know, has not been great in the past or, you know, there's sometimes grandparents can get quite invested in their children's conflict and so sometimes can, you know, feed into that or, or might not always behave um, as appropriately as we might hope. Um, so they are very fact specific. Um, it's, I mean, families are always 
unique and complex. And I feel like when grandparents are involved, it's just kind of like that next added level um, to that. Um, but then there are also times when, you know, you have an appropriate, loving, wonderful grandparent that for whatever reason is, is not permitted to have contact with the grandchild anymore. And it's clearly in the grandchild's best interest for that relationship to be preserved. So yeah, just so fact specific. I, I think sometimes what comes across to me is, is this kind of train of thought. Um, so the grandparent sees the parent as their child, right? Or their child's uh, spouse, whatever. And, and they may still have that in their mind, view that person as their child or someone that is irresponsible, what have you. And, and therefore think that they really need to be involved in the child's life because you know, they, they are the only responsible one in the picture. And um, normally I think the parent does not see it that way at all. And I think it can be sometimes difficult for a grandparent to remember to, or difficult for them to put themselves in the parent's shoes. It's the state, rightly so, does not take lightly taking a child out of its parent's care. Um, and so I think it, sometimes from, from the grandparents' per perspective, because it's kind of a unique situation where they have a unique relationship with the parent, um, it can be easy for them to lose sight of that. Hey, we don't want the government to be able to just take children out of, order the children out of a parent's care. We don't want the government to have that power. We, we want the parents to be responsible for the children. And if you ask the grandparent if they would be excited about the government telling them what to do with their children back, when they were younger, I, I don't think they would be excited about that prospect either. So it's, right. it's one of those things where I think it's right that the court is slow to make that type of an order against the will of one or both parents. Um, but sometimes uh, the parent really isn't in a position um, where they really do need the help of the grandparent, even if they don't have a good relationship with the grandparent. So that's my kind of take on it. Um, would, uh, for family situation, extended families, um, that are having that kind of struggle, would they also have access to the alternative dispute resolution tools, I guess, that are available to them? Yes, absolutely. And, and would the same requirements to recommend that type of option, if it's appropriate in the first place, would apply to that type of application as well. Um, and there would be nothing stopping, um, you know, uh, an extended family situation from accessing any of those same alternate dispute resolution options. Okay. So Riley, is there anything that we haven't, is there any changes that we haven't gone over yet? No, I mean there are certainly there are certainly other changes, but but that touches on all of the major changes that I was hoping to get through um, this afternoon. Nice, we've been going for a while. I don't know how long we've been going for. Kim, do you see like a timer? I do not see a timer. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we've been going. I think we've been going for about an hour, and uh, I think we've covered a lot and. Um, and uh, gotten some great insight about the changes, Riley. So thank you so much for for coming and for sharing your thoughts and and um, and just educating us about these changes. They're still relatively new. Um, Heather, do you have any last thoughts? 
Uh, thank you so much for your generous time, Riley, and for coming to be our guest. It was lovely to see you. Um, yeah. Yeah, and good job, Heather, on uh, you performed marvelously. Maybe a little bit like the Michael Jordan fever performance. <laughs> oh, you're not familiar with that? Well, I don't, I don't know. In the finals <laughs> against the Utah Jazz had like a... He alleges it was food poisoning, like uh, some, he, they ordered pizza and some, they found out it was Michael Jordan. So they food, they purposely poisoned the pizza on him because they were in Utah. He was really sick. And then he went out and had like one of the best games of his playoffs in, in his career while he was like puking moments before. So uh, all-star performance, Heather. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kim, any last thoughts? No, I think it's uh, really interesting to learn about the key items that people can hone in on when they're they're thinking about the the new or the amended divorce act. And I think it, you know, this conversation today has also made it clear for people who, who aren't that up to date on legislation that there is a federal divorce act and there's also a provincial document that um, that all works together and there's a lot to know and that's why people engage with lawyers because this stuff this stuff can be interpreted as mentioned in different ways and and the the average person may not have the inclination, but they probably just don't have the time to really understand all this. So I appreciate the summary of, of the important bits and you taking the time to, to give that to us, Riley. Also good to see your face because the last time we chatted was on the phone, so. Yes. Yeah, thank you all for inviting me. It was my pleasure to, to come speak with you all. Yeah, well, great. Like I said, great to have you. Um, and I'm glad to hear we covered everything you were wanting to cover. Uh, you can also share any concluding thought that you want, if you have any for us. Um, no, I don't. I was going to I was going to say something like pandemic specific, but that's just a little bit too depressing. So I'll just yeah, no, I won't. OK, uh, well, uh, that'll do. So uh, I don't. I also don't have a closing thought this time, but uh, just thanks again, Riley. And um, this has been Access to Justice, and we'll see you next time. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallory Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Stole my heart from my lips. That was it.